Welcome back, beautiful campers. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Genevieve. And you've arrived once again to Camping is Cancelled. It's been a real windy past few days here in the Midwest. All the little baby garden plants are hanging on for dear life. And I've stopped trying to style my hair because if I so much as stick my head outside, it looks like a tornado went by. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that forecast that no one asked for, Jen. Oh, it's my pleasure, Caitlin. So, do we want to tell everyone who thinks they might get out and enjoy a nice bike ride or sleep out under the stars why camping is actually canceled for this week and possibly forever? Since we're here, it would be my darkest pleasure. One slow afternoon in the summer of 1990, Mrs. Gardner stood at the kitchen counter of her home in White House, Ohio, up to her elbows in potato salad. It was the 4th of July, and she was looking forward to attending their small town's holiday picnic with her 26-year-old daughter, Robin, later that day. The Northwest Ohio weather had been particularly hot and humid, but Robin still thought she'd get in a bike ride before the picnic. Mrs. Gardner took a taste of her potato salad and started to reach for the pepper grinder when the front door exploded open and a frantic Robin collapsed, hyperventilating onto the floor. Stricken with horror, her mother realized that one of Robin's wrists was locked in a pair of handcuffs, and in the doorway behind her stood a man whom Mrs. Gardner had never seen before clutching a motorcycle helmet and looking just as concerned and bewildered as she now felt. As Robin attempted to get her breathing under control, the following story tumbled out of the terrified young woman. She had been riding her bike along the rural OB road when she heard the sound of an approaching pickup truck. For corn country, this was nothing unusual. It would actually be weird to not get passed by a pickup truck on a rural bike ride. But instead of passing her, the truck roared up behind her and knocked her clear off of her bike into a ditch. The male driver jumped out and asked a disoriented Robin if she was all right. But as she began to stand up, the man lunged towards her and struck her on the back of the head with a hammer, shoved a screwdriver against her throat, and hissed, Get in the truck or I'll kill you. Nearly blinded with pain, Robin's initial shock and terror was quickly replaced with a surge of rage. This son of a bitch was not going to take her life from her before it had barely even begun. Robin screamed and fought back as hard as she could as the man dug the screwdriver into her throat and dragged her towards his truck. He tried to twist both of her arms behind her back and clap a pair of handcuffs on her, but she was fighting so hard that he only managed to get them on one of her wrists. As he forced her into the cab of his truck, Robin heard the distant hum of an approaching motorcycle. She arched her back and flailed with all of her strength, screaming at the top of her lungs and praying that the passing motorcyclist would notice her distress. It worked. In the split second after Robin's attacker let go of her to slam the passenger door, she launched herself across the seat and out of the still open driver's side door. The cyclist had slowed to a stop just up ahead, and Robin sprinted towards him with the pair of handcuffs dangling from her wrist. She leapt onto the back of the motorcycle and clung to the biker, yelling, Please help me. He's going to kill me. Her attacker then had the audacity to approach them and said to the man on the motorcycle, Don't listen to her. She's crazy. Fortunately, our motorcyclist hero of the story did not buy this line of utter bullshit, and he sped off with Robin on his bike, leaving her six-foot-two assailant on the side of the road. Bizarrely, police would later find Robin's attacker still sitting at the scene when they came back through with Robin following in an ambulance. 
Robin was determined to identify this man to police, and medics actually lifted her up to the ambulance window as she lay strapped to the stretcher, severely concussed and in a neck brace with a skull fracture so that she could make direct eye contact with her attacker and say to police, that's him. The attacker tried to claim that his remaining at the scene of the incident actually proved his innocence and that Robin was the one who'd turned her bike into his path, then falsely accused him of intentionally hitting her. The handcuffs that he'd put on her were just his making sure that he could, quote, attach her to something stationary so as to prevent her from leaving until the police or someone else arrived. The 31-year-old attacker would later be convicted of abduction and would serve just under three years of his four to ten year sentence in prison before he was released on good behavior in December of 1993. Despite the trauma she endured and the abysmally short sentence given to her attacker, Robin refused to give him any of the power that he had tried to take from her. And in the years that followed, Robin chose to celebrate her life on the 4th of July, instead of the actual date she was born. Now, at this point, you might be going, wow, girls, that was a short episode. I guess I've got to fill the rest of the hour with cat TikToks. But not so fast, campers. Because, as you might have already noticed, we haven't even mentioned the person named in the title of this episode yet. For that, we have to fast forward 26 years all the way to 2016 to another rural Ohio road and another young woman who was out enjoying a bicycle ride on a summer evening. A young woman who was a bright spot in her community and was deeply loved by her family and friends. But tragically, this young woman would be failed by a justice system that should have known better 26 years ago. And this time, it would cost the world her life. This is the story of Sierra Joggin. On July 19, 2016, Josh Kalinske slowly chugged along on his motorcycle on a rural county road not far from the local high school in Fulton County, Ohio. Staying close alongside his girlfriend, who was riding next to him on her bicycle, 20-year-old Sierra Joggin. Josh and Sierra had been best friends their entire childhood, and around middle school, their friendship turned into something more. Now, as young adults, they would sometimes talk about getting married, but for now, they were just enjoying each other's company and figuring out what they wanted from life. Sierra was about to start her junior year at the University of Toledo's College of Business, and she was looking forward to moving in with her Aunt Tara before the start of the upcoming semester. At around 5 o'clock earlier that afternoon, Sierra and her mom, Sheila, had caught each other in passing as Sierra wheeled her purple bike out of the garage, and she told her mom that she was going to ride over to Josh's for a little bit. His house was right around seven miles away. Fuck that. (laughs) Hell no. But on a bike, it's not that bad. Fuck that. (laughs) Gosh. Not me. I mean, pictures of Sierra, she was in good shape. Like, good for like her. She had them legs. She was doing good. I get out of breath walking up two steps. <laughs> Maybe I need to bike. So, Caitlin will not be biking seven miles away. <laughs> About a 30 to 45 minute ride. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that she was very familiar with. When she showed up at Josh's house, she told him that this was her workout for the day. No shit. <laughs> yep. And when she started to ride her bike back, Josh hopped on his motorcycle to ride along beside her. He's got it down. Yeah. That's also really sweet. That that, is cute. Because you know that you're not going that fast on a bicycle compared to a motorcycle. So he's just kind of like... He's just cruising. Chugging alongside her. No. And of course, it wouldn't be a true 2016 dating moment unless it got posted to Snapchat. The green Midwest farm field stretching into the distance as far as one can see. Josh's arm holding the phone in the foreground of the picture and a tanned, 
happy-looking Sierra in a yellow tank top, sunglasses, and neon sneakers smiling on her bike just over his shoulder. Caitlin, didn't you initially start talking to Jacob on Snapchat? Wasn't that how y'all, like, reconnected? No, actually, (laughs) actually, he stalked me. He did stalk me because he realized that, like, my relationship status changed to, like, single. Okay. And he promptly slid into my DMs. Oh, Jacob, you little 30 dog. Well, and we promptly got married, like, five months (laughs) later, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, but it worked out because you produced a baby that's one of the cutest things I've ever seen. Can't argue that. Yeah. But I do hate Snapchat. Jacob loves Snapchat. I I can't I, stand it. I never was on Snapchat. I've exclusively been a Facebook and then Instagram person. Mm-hmm. And then I tried to get on Twitter. Mm, but I realized work. that's only for like super smart people and got really annoyed with it fast. So I've got like two followers and that's... <laughs> <laughs> they're all middle-aged men just like Aww. on our instagram so you know yeah. if those middle-aged men want to send us money follow yeah yeah follow oh us. yeah you <laughs> you plug us i'm just shamelessly asking for money <laughs> no hate but yeah the the snapchat the neon sneakers mm, that's just yeah. so very mid 2000 mid 2000 yeah and I've lived in the Midwest long enough now to know that at the end of the summer when you're outside, it really is nice because oh yeah, it's cool enough that the mosquitoes have been killed off, but you can play volleyball or not do a bike ride if you're Caitlin, but <laughs> sit outside with a you beer. You can drink. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There you go. And But it I is can, really pretty. It's yeah. Just... It is pretty. And I can totally picture them doing this it it was a nice it was a nice moment for them so the couple rode together all the way to the corner of county road six just a half mile or so from sierra's home and she insisted to josh that she'd be fine to ride the rest of the way by herself just like she had so many times before they kissed goodbye and josh told sierra he'd check in with her in a little while At around 9.30 p.m., Sierra's mother, Sheila, was pulling into their driveway, and it struck her a little odd that the upstairs window going into Sierra's bedroom was dark, because Sierra usually would have been home by now, but then she figured Sierra had probably just ended up staying at Josh's for a while, and Sheila wasn't concerned about her 20-year-old daughter, who was very responsible, being out at 9.30 p.m. What Sheila did not know, though, was that just a few miles down the road, Josh was growing increasingly worried. Sierra hadn't responded to any of his texts, checking to see that she'd made it home. And he'd even tried to call her several times, but it had all gone straight to voicemail. When there was still nothing from Sierra at 10.30 p.m., Josh called Sheila. Right away, everyone knew deep down in their gut that something was very, very wrong. The Fulton County roads, while not super busy with tons of traffic, were regularly used by large farm equipment and trucks with big trailers and Sheila feared that Sierra could have been struck and was lying injured alongside the road. Her Aunt Tara wasted no time in calling every one of Sierra's friends to see if they had any communications with her, posting on Facebook asking for help locating her and calling all of the hospitals in the surrounding area in case she had been brought in after an accident. But all of their efforts turned up absolutely nothing. At 11.30 p.m., approximately four hours after Sierra had been missing, her family called the Fulton County Police. They emphasized that they were certain Sierra had not run away, that it was incredibly unlike her to be out anywhere past 11 p.m., and that they had been frantically looking for her since 10 p.m. with no results. I saw on multiple articles that people, I say articles, more like Reddit, shit that people are kind of throwing her family shade for quote-unquote waiting so long to call police but I don't think they waited long at all because Josh's boyfriend did what any decent boyfriend is going to do if they agree Josh's boyfriend (laughs) (laughs) Sierra's boyfriend Josh did what any like normal couple agreed they were gonna do he's like okay let me know when you get home Mm -hmm. and la-di-da enjoy your evening and when she never checked in with him and 
it was normal for her to do that, he got concerned. And it wasn't something else I saw on these threads was that people were like, well, that's kind of creepy and controlling that he was constantly texting her and trying to call her. And no, it's not. When they said they were going to talk to each other and he said he was like okay. going to call her. I guess I'm controlling wanting, I mean, Jacob and I both have each other's locations turned oh, on. Yeah, I. that's, I think, normal when you... When you both agree to it. somebody's safety. Yeah. Exactly. So also she's 20 years old. Yeah. She is a full grown adult. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not weird that they waited a little bit to be like, well, maybe there was a misunderstanding and she like went to go help a friend or something. And your first line of thought isn't, oh my God, my daughter's been abducted. Yeah. My, my girlfriend is she got picked up like that's not your first line of thought exactly in especially in this area where they live where they emphasize in every article and every documentary i watched that everybody knew everybody this was an extremely low crime area everyone was comfortable just being out and about so of course their mind isn't going to go straight to something sinister and it's nice to live in an area like that so Mm -hmm. i don't think that they waited too long at all if anything i'm surprised that they didn't wait longer exactly so like they didn't wait until the next morning exactly but them reporting it when they did ends up being a really good thing Mm -hmm. now as so often occurs in these missing person cases a family will desperately plead with law enforcement to please do something but they get dismissed and told their family member probably just ran away or law enforcement will say they have to wait 24 hours before they will even begin looking for that person. And meanwhile, every minute that goes by feels like an agonizing eternity for a family who knows in their gut that their loved one is in grave danger. But this time, we have to say, was one of those instances where law enforcement showed up and did not dick around, nor did they discourage her family in the community from searching every Fulton County ditch, roadside, alleyway, and cornfield for any possible sign of Sierra or her bicycle. Even though Sierra was a legal adult and could not be officially declared a missing person until 24 hours had passed, law enforcement understood that they were in a race against time and began searching for Sierra immediately. Ohio Special Agent David Hammond put it best when he said that a missing person in a Midwest farm country is, quote, like losing your child at Disney World. But in Fulton County, Ohio, the Disney World is cornfield after cornfield. You're overwhelmed by where to even start. Unquote. That gives me a... And as like people being surrounded by cornfields where we're at in the Midwest. Yeah. I can't even imagine my kid wandering into... Yeah. All the analogies about being sheerly overwhelmed. Like a needle in a haystack. A child at Disney World. It's... (laughs) I'd rather lose my kid in a cornfield than Disney World, honestly. Yeah, I guess that's true, because at least in a cornfield, there's ideally no other people. Exactly. At midnight, so we're now at five hours since Sierra was last seen. A sheriff's deputy was traveling slowly down where she and Josh had ridden together along County Road 6, looking for any sign of anything suspicious, when he noticed a section of the tall late summer corn had been knocked over. And... For those of us who aren't Midwesterners, this would have looked weird because, Caitlin, as you know, at the end of the summer when corn is super high, Mm -hmm. it's packed tight in there. And when it's at its full height, like right before the harvest, it's pretty much a wall, Mm -hmm. like a wall of corn on either side of the road. And if a big chunk of it gets broken down... That's noticeable because the only thing that really like runs between those stalks is deer and they don't Uh knock down big chunks of it. So that would have definitely been like... Like caught the eye of someone. Yeah. And you don't don't mess with other people's cornfields. So you know it's not like a regular person just driving through it or something. Like that's not a thing. Exactly. A vehicle is not going to be going through there until it's the harvesting equipment Mm -hmm. at the end of the season. 
So the deputy pulled over and got out with his spotlight because remember by now it's pitch black dark outside and out in the country where there's minimal light pollution when it gets dark, it is dark. The area where the stalks were broken formed a sort of crude path further back into the field and as the deputy followed it, he was hit with an overwhelming and unmistakable odor of gasoline and he also spotted a small fuse box lying by itself on the ground. He carefully backed out of the field the same way he entered and began slowly sweeping along the side of the road with his spotlight. He then saw two pairs of sunglasses on the ground not far from the broken corn stalks, and just a little further down, a ways back into the cornfield, the beam of the spotlight suddenly caught the reflector of a purple bicycle. Eerily, the bicycle was standing upright and facing towards the road, as though it had been walked backwards into the stalks to conceal it. Law enforcement descended on the scene, and the hair shot up on the back of their necks when they realized that there was blood on the seat and the handlebars of the bicycle. It wasn't a crazy amount, not close enough to elicit fear that it was from a life-threatening injury, but it looked more like whoever had moved the bike to that location already had blood on their hands and transferred it as they backed into the corn. In addition to the sunglasses, in the same area, they also found a single green sock that matched the pair Sierra was known to be wearing at the time of her disappearance, and an orange-handled screwdriver with bloodstains on it. Any remaining shred of hope that this could be a runaway situation was now gone. This was worst case scenario, and law enforcement immediately shut down the road to anyone besides investigating law enforcement. Sierra's family felt more helpless than ever. The police did inform them that they'd found Sierra's bike, but not the other suspicious items and now they were no longer allowed to search themselves along that specific road. So there was really nothing they could do besides wait. For Sheila and Sierra's Aunt Tara, this feeling of despair and helplessness was the absolute darkest time of their lives. As police continued searching along County Road 6, a crime scene investigator noticed what appeared to be a single tire track going down into the ditch line on the right side of the road, a tire track belonging to a motorcycle. By this time, the public's knowledge of Sierra's disappearance was spreading like wildfire. Her family was posting on social media, law enforcement were canvassing door to door asking for any and all information that could be helpful and the entire town was on high alert. Early that next morning, the Fulton County Sheriff's Office received a call from a local farmer. He'd realized that right around the same time Sierra went missing, he and his teenage son had actually been traveling southbound on County Road 6 in his truck, right past the field where they believed Sierra had been abducted when he'd noticed a motorcycle helmet on the side of the road. He had his son jump out, grab the helmet, and toss it into the bed of the truck. And they didn't think much of it. But a few hours later, when he heard about Sierra's disappearance and request for information, he thought it might be relevant. And he was right. Investigators immediately noticed red stains on the interior and exterior of that helmet stains that would later confirm to be blood. And Caitlin, this is something that when I was researching, people were saying that why did this farmer wait so long to let law enforcement know about this helmet? This is such a bizarre thing. Even if there wasn't a missing person, he should have called it in right away. But I think that this is... A cultural sort of misconception about what it's like mm -hmm. out in the middle of nowhere because where we live for example there's a ton of motorcyclists there's always people out and about 
there's people with motorcycles in the bed of their trucks. Mm-hmm. It is not unnormal to find something like this on the side of the road. And my thought when I heard that this farmer had picked up this helmet was not that he stopped because, oh my gosh, something terrible must mm-hmm. have happened, but he was either like, oh, this motorcycle helmet is going to be asked about on a local Facebook group by someone being like, oh, hey, I lost my helmet out the back of my truck. Could you, if anyone finds it, please drop it off at this specific address and then they'll give their like, (laughs) their like fucking social security number asking for someone to give it back. (laughs) Cause that's just how small towns are. Yes, And I know from having a motorcycle helmet myself that those things are expensive. Yeah, you don't just let them go. Exactly. They start at like $200 and can be as expensive as $500. So it would be like... (laughs) I mean, we have... We've... I've driven past coolers. I've driven past ladders, tools. Oh, yeah. So many gloves. So many... I mean, obviously beer cans. So many koozies. So many like actual things worth money that it's like, hey, circle back for that. Yeah. You don't see something like that out here and automatically think crime no so they probably just thought either somebody dropped this and is going to be wanting it or maybe we can use it ourselves or sell it and get some money so i don't think it's weird at all that they didn't report it to police immediately but i do want to give them props because they were clearly paying attention to what was going on in the community because they did tell law enforcement when they realized that they were looking for stuff so yeah so yeah good good neighboring neighbors <laughs> don't listen to the haters special agent megan roberts also observed latent prints were visible on the helmet and dried into the blood which immediately read to her that this helmet could easily have been a weapon that somebody could attack somebody else with And I also don't think it was that unusual that they didn't notice there was blood on the helmet because when they picked up this thing, it was probably nighttime. So there's no... Also in a cornfield, so dirt. Exactly. Exactly. It's not like it was also drenched and dripping in blood. It was... There was dried blood Mm -hmm. on it, so... And again, it just goes back to, as viewers listening to the case right now, we obviously know there was a murder. There's foul play. Mm-hmm. We think of murder. This dude picked it up and was like, yeah. some rowdy teenager lost it. Mm-hmm. Nobody yeah. thinks murder right off their brain. No sane person, hopefully. And that's coming from two people with generalized anxiety. <laughs> exactly. So the fact that he even reported it, I think, is commendable. Yeah. And it ended up being something. So that's awesome. And at this point, All the evidence that agents had collected was definitely pointing towards a struggle involving someone on a motorcycle. And from what they knew, the only other person who had most recently been around Sierra and drove a motorcycle was none other than Josh Kalinske. But from the beginning, Josh gave his full and willing consent to law enforcement. They showed up at his house and completed a thorough search of every nook and cranny. They took clothing from the floor of his bedroom to see if they could find any trace of blood belonging to Sierra, and they looked over every single inch of his motorcycle for blood, for damage, for hair, anything at all that could point to foul play, but it was completely clean. Again, they searched his truck looking for blood, hair, fibers, anything that could indicate that she could have been moved in that vehicle, but nothing. They did find a pair of brown coveralls with a large dark stain that looked undeniably like blood, which Josh insisted to detectives was blood from deer hunting, and testing did confirm that the blood was from an animal and was not human. After extensively interviewing Josh and finding zero forensic evidence among his possessions, law enforcement finally concluded that he had absolutely nothing to do with her death and that he had no idea where she was. 
this must have been so frustrating for Josh and terrifying because can you imagine somebody that you love and care about so much disappears Mm -hmm. and immediately you're zeroed in on and I I totally get like I mean I know you do too like looking at him as a suspect you get why yeah absolutely but yeah coming you know you didn't do it and you know your girlfriend's missing and you just want the best for her and like deer bloods on your coveralls you're like look for somebody else I get that and but still, good job for the police actually doing yes, work doing where due some diligence. Don't. And he was very cooperative with them. But I also think about how he must have felt so isolated because once they started looking at him, you know that her family would have been like, and he would have suddenly been in the hot seat yeah when the rest of them were sitting around you know desperately looking for her and waiting for information it would have been a very lonely and isolating yeah instance for him and i i did get from the documentary though and i know that's Mm -hmm. edited it's blah 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 but because this all happened so quickly with which if you look at other cases this is happening so fast it really is it's happening over a matter of hours Mm -hmm. not days or weeks or months like so many cases do and just the vibe that i got from her mom and her aunt it was never malice towards him you're right and but i i I completely get what you mean because even if it wasn't like you're like he even says he was the last one to see her yeah and not a day goes by that he doesn't relive the last moment of seeing her and have guilt for not following her yeah and something else that i thought about and this is super morbid and venturing into the gross territory but this is where my mind goes so i'm gonna drop it on our podcast (laughs) but okay so what if you know it has to have happened at some time in the annals of <laughs> not of the annals. <laughs> it has to have happened sometime in a criminal investigation where blood belonging to a female has been found in the bedroom or in the house of their intimate partner that didn't actually have anything to do with their murder, but was like period blood. Because there is, in my understanding, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but it's all the same. Mm -hmm. And there's really no way of distinguishing between what is quote unquote period blood and what is blood from your head, from your wrist, from your ankle. So, what if they had been, like, doing something and some part of her blood had gotten on his clothing and it was found in his room? Because, you know, know he's a 20... I know my period blood has been on a few... Not a few sheets. Yeah, no, exactly what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like, I've woken up in the morning and been like, oh, God. Mm -hmm. Or, like, you've got something in your pants. Or even a nosebleed. Or even, like, a cut. Like, anything. Yeah. And especially, they had been friends for years. They had... Yeah. Just how many times you just... Yeah. When you're close to somebody, no matter what, even if you didn't do it or, like, you know the person didn't do it, you're like, what do I have in my room that could incriminate me? I've also been known to... You wake up in the middle of the night. You realize you started your period. There's a pile of laundry on the floor next to you. Have grabbed one of my husband's old, like, college shirts. Made a makeshift (laughs) diaper. (laughs) And run to the bathroom. (laughs) But but seriously, though, like... And he was a 20-year-old dude, and they're nasty. Like, what if something like that had happened? And... He was just like, oh, I'll get to it later, or he didn't even notice. Yes. I mean, like, he would have I'm going to go with the latter because most been... guys don't notice. <laughs> but he would have been screwed. Like, all it would have taken was one. So. And 
you know that I like I'm I mean, sorry my I'm, mind went to that dark place but and I'm glad it never didn't know. happen but you never know and I wonder if that ever has happened like it has to have so now I'm gonna be wondering that every case I listen to next time Jacob has a nosebleed I want to be like <laughs> over the toilet do not touch anything in this house do not leave it anywhere exactly which we do know if anybody were to kill anyone it'd be him killing me Mm, we've already distinguished that yes but either way fortunately that did not happen in this case by the time law enforcement ruled josh out as a suspect it was now 16 hours since the couple had parted ways and they knew they were running out of time if they had any hope of finding sierra still alive dna analysis came back from the items collected where her bicycle was found that indicated the presence of Sierra's DNA, as well as an unknown male's. But who? Over the next day, the community of Fulton County turned out in hundreds to help search for Sierra. They were canvassing, they were walking cornfields, and reporting suspicious-looking vehicles, but police still had no new suspects. At the 36-hour mark, they decided to take a new approach and shift their focus to identifying any violent or sex offenders in Fulton County who could have potentially encountered Sierra as she was biking on the road. And wouldn't you know it, a convicted violent felon was living just a few miles from where Sierra's bicycle was found. A 56-year-old man who had served three years in prison for an abduction attempt in the summer of 1990, named James Dean Worley. What is up with people naming their kids after movie stars? We had John, (laughs) well, I guess John Wayne glover named himself that's true man i love me some james dean and now that is ruined forever you know and my son's middle name is james Mm, my dad's name is james oh man granddaddy's name is james but they haven't you know abducted anyone that i know of so yeah i guess his mom was really into james dean and she had some high aspirations that he did not live he definitely failed considering he lived with her still Hmm, true (laughs) at the time the police had no specific evidence connecting him to this particular crime but it was a direction and they decided to take it the whirly property appeared on the surface just like any other rural ohio farmhouse a little weather worn and unkept but nothing that screamed particularly out of the ordinary i can agree because my grandparents literally live a county over and yeah um that's so crazy that <laughs> you have ties that close to this case yeah i mean one county you over just tell me that your grandpa literally had a job in fulton county my wow. mom is from ohio go bucks um has been through delta many times in her childhood wow and when we go to visit my family in ohio we stay less than like maybe 25 minutes from that from delta wow that's crazy my closest tie to ohio is the summer i spent in xenia ohio and i'm not sure how close that is to fulton county Mm -hmm. but that was 2012 Mm -hmm. so now i'm gonna have to go look that up but you got a good old clinton county boy i did who little special but he's a good little golden retriever he'll resent that he'll say he's a doberman a chihuahua chihuahua yes let's see oh wow they're they're eight hours away so no (laughs) is that like southern yeah Yeah, because this is like the northwestern part like i mean if it's it's pretty much just um east of it's close to Michigan, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. It's, very close it's to truly like just a very short drive to Michigan. Okay, okay. Like it's almost. We joke that my we're very Ohio State fans, mm-hmm. but we joke that like we're so close to they're so close to Michigan that we should just be Michigan fans. I see. Okay. Like they should practically live there. That puts it in good perspective. Yeah. So it's his house sat on approximately one acre. With a main house where James lived with his mother. So yeah, not doing too great at 56 years old. There's always something with the Ugh. mother. 
Ugh. yeah, that's a, it, the man lives, still lives with his mother and he's not, you know, like her caretaker yeah. because she's unable to fend for herself. It's not an honorable thing. It's just a, this is creepy. Yeah. And to the right of the house was a series of barns. James Worley was less than thrilled when he answered the knock at his front door and found four uniformed members of the violent crime task force. From the get-go, his demeanor struck Special Agent David Hamden as aggressive and dangerous. But reluctantly, he allowed officers to enter his house at their request for a voluntary search. The small farmhouse shared by an elderly mother and her son was exactly what you might picture. A cramped but well-kept kitchen with lace curtains and matching hanging coffee mugs. A quote, office that was basically a dumping ground for clutter, a tiny laundry room with a pile of dirty work clothes on the ground, and a pretty bare small bedroom belonging to James Worley with mismatched linens and a single tiny window. The whole time law enforcement was looking, Worley followed them around, visibly annoyed with their presence, insisting that they weren't going to find any dead bodies and that he hadn't killed anybody or raped anybody. Because, you know, yeah, let me, I'm not going to offer you, like, tea or something. I'm going to tell you I haven't raped anybody. There's no children in my fucking basement. And also, they didn't show up there saying that somebody had been raped or killed. They just said that they were looking for a young woman. So, the fact that he's saying all of that would be... Like, mm, okay, James. Raising some red flags. Okay. He also said that if he was actually a psychopath, he would have, quote, had one of the agent's guns and shot you all. Okay, James. (laughs) (laughs) James, judging by your mugshot, you needed to do quite a lot more CrossFit before you'd be able to overpower an FBI agent at the height of their prime. As agents peered into every room and closet, they clung to the hope that they would fling open a door to find Sierra miraculously alive, but the house turned up absolutely nothing suspicious. From there, Worley begrudgingly agreed to give them a tour around the property. The first building was a workshop that James used to fix motorcycles and do small engine repairs. It was horrendously cluttered, but was clearly used as a workshop, and again, Officers did not notice anything that raised alarm bells. When I watched the documentary on this case and they show pictures of this workshop, it gives me so much anxiety because there's just so much shit. It's just cluttered. It's just clutter. And it's not clutter that isn't relevant to a workshop, but it's like a decade's worth of things have just built up on every surface. And I don't know well i know you're the same way but Mm -hmm. i can't function in that level of clutter but more people do than not and if there wasn't overtly anything sinister Mm -hmm. then i guess it was fine but and again we're at a viewpoint where we know know what he's doing and whatnot so like if you watch the documentary, you will see what we're talking about. It's just it's just not unusual for him. The vibes are not vibing. Mm-mm. Upon seeing the motorcycle stuff, they did mention to Worley that security video from Evers Green High School complex on County Road 6 showed a motorcycle traveling on the road between his property and where Sierra went missing around 7 p.m. But he insisted he was nowhere near County Road 6 at that time. Hmm. But what officers weren't missing was that with every step they took on Worley's farm, he became visibly more agitated and anxious. He did not like them being there at all, and his anxiety rolled over into outright anger and indignation when they asked to be let into the property's large weathered barn, saying he just wanted officers to get it done so that they could, quote, get out of his fucking hair. If anything, that makes me want to be more in your fucking hair. Right. Dude, like... That's not a good look. (sighs) But Agent Hammond was not about to be rushed anywhere. And as he used his investigative eye to slowly take in every inch of the barn, he noticed that the bare dirt floor was covered in fresh lines from the tines of a rake. 
To the untrained eye or to someone who was unfamiliar with the rural farm country, this might have gone completely unnoticed. But as anyone familiar with old barns knows, the dirt floor of a barn that is not actively being used as a place to shelter animals is just that, a dirt floor. And maybe they wouldn't have found it as odd if the rest of the property had also been maintained with an OCD level of cleanliness. But the clutter and disarray in the other workshop, office, and bedroom would definitely suggest otherwise. Even more odd, the agents realized that the dozens of square hay bales piled up in the barn appear to be arranged in the shape of a four-postered bed, and their hair on the back of their necks prickled. They wasted no time pulling aside a few of the hay bales, and suddenly they uncovered a large crude crate that had been painted a garish green and had chicken wire going around all sides. Inside the crate, they could see piles of Ziploc bags containing women's clothing with labels that had handwritten in sharpie saying, bikini bottoms, leggings, lace and bra panties, black lace dress, boy shorts, boob tube mask. What the fuck is that? I have no idea. I think it's supposed to be like a tube top. Boob tubes and then masks Uh like also in there. Beach shorts, white beach dress, Daisy Dukes. Ew. Lace stretchy dress. Oh, this is a good one. (laughs) So this bitch spelled lace stretchy dress as L-A-S-E-S-T-R-E-C-H-Y. And I would be remiss if I was not a true English major to point out how cringy that is for a fully grown man. At least know how to spell lace, sir. I mean, but again, the intelligence is just not shocking to me on his part i mean i guess bless his heart for trying (laughs) he also had bags with adult diapers what the fuck black leather bdsm equipment and an unopened coil of white diamond braid clothesline james worley said it was all quote girlfriend stuff girlfriend stuff in your Ziploc bag in a crate hidden beneath hay bales in your barn. Written in Sharpie. Okay, okay. Okay, sir. And he would give it to women that he went out with, and they liked it. Cut to the (laughs) documentary quote where a special agent is like, everything about that barn screamed kidnapping, abduction, and sexual assault. (laughs) And James Worley's like, that's girlfriend stuff, and they liked it. It Give me a gift card to Victoria's Secret. Do not give me fucking L-A-S-E lace stretchy <laughs> dress and a Ziploc bag. Ah, oh, that's so creepy. Ew. Well, among Whirly's date night Ziploc bag gifts, officers laid eyes on something else that sent their alarm bells screaming. It was a single loose pair of size small women's underwear that was not bagged like the others with a visible blood stain in the liner. Oh, no. Unsurprisingly, when this was pointed out, James Worley completely shut down the voluntary investigation and told them to close the crate immediately. Agents knew it wouldn't be long before they'd be back with a warrant, but in the meantime, they took James Worley to the Fulton County Sheriff's Office for questioning. They would later say that from the second Worley had opened the door to that barn, even without saying it, They all just knew at the same time, deep in their guts, that this was their guy. The exact timing is unclear when in this process the search warrant was issued. But at this time, it had gone through. Worley had been taken in for questioning. And 41 hours had now passed since Sierra went missing. So as you can imagine... This team of agents fucking went to town on that creepy barn. As they cleared the hay bales away, a large piece of plywood became visible in the floor, and that had what appeared to be multiple circular air holes cut into it. And beneath that plywood, a hole had been dug straight into the ground, just deep and wide enough to hold a several square cubic foot size freezer that had ratchet straps wrapped all the way around it so that it could be cinched tight on the top. 
The officers dreaded what they might find inside, but at the same time, they were hopeful that just maybe they would finally have some answers. They braced themselves and lifted open the lid, but there was no Sierra. They did notice, though, that the entire interior of the freezer was lined with thick, disgustingly filthy carpet. And investigators were hit immediately with the overwhelming smell of bleach layered with the unmistakable odor of decomposition. Once they'd exhausted their search inside of the barn, investigators fanned out to make sure they'd covered every square inch of the property. And wouldn't you know it, in every single vehicle Worley owned, the man had a straight-up to-go kidnapping bag fully stocked with duct tape, ski masks, rope, zip ties, and pepper spray. They also found a motorcycle that had weed stuck to it, handcuff keys, two sets of handcuffs, zip ties, and a used bottle of bleach. It had now been 48 hours, and despite their exhaustive search of the entire Worley farm, Sierra had still not been found, and her entire family felt helpless, and though the world had literally stopped, where was she? Back at the station, James Worley had an answer for absolutely everything he was asked. The freezer in the ground? Well, that was where he hid his weed. The deflated air mattress that Agent Hammond had found hidden in the barn? That was just part of his camping gear. The BDSM equipment, duct tape, zip ties, women's underwear, and the little hidden room officers found in the barn with every window spray painted black and restraints dangling from the walls? Well, that was all for his aspiring career path of becoming a porn producer. So they just needed to stop kink-shaming him. Fuck off. <laughs> this is embarrassing for the actual kink sh- community. I almost say kink-shaming community. This is embarrassing for the kink community because no, sir. Abducting and assaulting women is not what Your whole about. get up was... Watch the video. Look at his nasty-ass barn. Look at that... N- just that cooler oh Oh, that's for my weed sir have you ever seen carpet that was so vile looking it is disgusting and maybe he very well was keeping weed in that cooler at one point but if he was i feel bad for the weed because that carpet was vile they also said investigators also said it smelled heavily of chemicals not yeah. weed exactly and weed has a very overwhelming smell especially if you're using that for long-term storage bleach isn't gonna knock that out Mm-mm. that whole barn would have probably smelled like weed but no <laughs> but yeah good but luck nice on your porn producing fucking path yeah exactly <laughs> oh And there was one other thing. Since law enforcement was being so nosy, Worley figured he may as well tell them that, you know what, he actually had been riding his motorcycle on County Road 6 the same day Sierra went missing, around 6 p.m. And wouldn't you know it, his motorcycle actually stalled out right when he noticed two bicycles lying on the ground on that same road. He hadn't seen anyone around, so he got the great idea to just ride one of those bikes home and come back for his motorcycle later. But, you know, you can't trust people nowadays, so he'd backed his motorcycle into some stalks of corn to conceal it, but at the last minute was able to get his motorcycle going again and decided to just ride it back home. Oh, and there was one more thing. If... Officers happened to find a motorcycle helmet, a couple of fuses, a pair of sunglasses, and an orange-handled screwdriver uh, nearby. Those were his, too. 
So did he happen to like smoke all the weed that was sitting down in that cooler? Because this dude is fucking out of it. Apparently, he thought he was being super slick and super smart. <laughs> oh yeah, if you happen to find like any weapons and like bloody, any you know, bloody helmet, weapons at the scene where a twenty-year-old woman. You know, missing. if you happen to find a dead body of the 20-year-old woman you're talking about, too. Yeah, uh, I saw her, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just thought somebody surely was going to come along at any time, so I didn't do anything. <sighs> Isn't this something that we've seen happen before in a lot of cases where these criminals think that by offering up information that makes them look super honest and forthcoming that they're not going to be suspected of the crime that they're trying to hide. So they'll give details of that literal crime thinking that the police is going to be like, oh, well, somebody who is innocent would never admit to these things that look so suspicious. But sir, you left a bloody screwdriver a few feet away from where the bicycle of a missing woman was found. No. Also, the person who is at fault would be the only person to know those details exactly it doesn't make sense to me exactly like lying games of some people is so weak but again bless his heart he's trying (laughs) and it doesn't take long or a genius to infer that james worley was shortly after all of this not confessing, confessing, mm-hmm. arrested and charged with the abduction of Sierra Joggin. If there were ever a case where circumstantial evidence alone was enough to get a conviction, good God, this would be it. But that would turn out to not be necessary because, unsurprisingly, every single item found at the scene of the abduction would be confirmed to contain both Sierra's and James Dean Worley's DNA. The purple underwear and the blood in the liner were in fact confirmed to be Sierra's. And it would later come out that earlier on the very day Sierra went missing, Worley had spent the morning googling and watching violent pornography of underage girls being bound and strangled despicable fantasies of total control. 48 hours after she went missing, law enforcement was finally able to call her mother Sheila and let her know that they'd made an arrest. And this was something. But for Sheila, her Aunt Tara, Josh, and the rest of her family and friends, an arrest didn't really mean anything until the one person that they cared about most had been found. Where was Sierra? And finally, the determination of the small country community of Fulton County would give them an answer. A local farmer who owned a large property not far from the abduction site had heeded the imploring of law enforcement and Sierra's family to get out and meticulously walk through their fields in search of anything that could help them find Sierra. On the third day since Sierra had been declared missing, this farmer had been walking deep through his fields when he noticed an oddly disturbed stretch of the earth, as though something had been dragged for about 20 to 25 yards, and when he followed it to the end, he found a fresh mound of dirt. Trigger warning, guys, for some difficult content ahead, but we're going to tell you because as much as we've enjoyed making fun of the ridiculousness of James Worley's unintelligence up until this point, what he did to Sierra Joggin is nothing to joke about. As law enforcement pushed their shovels into the dirt and began to dig, almost immediately they were hit with the odor of decomposition. It was Sierra. She had suffered a tremendous blow to the back of the head and was wearing a lace bra, rope, an adult diaper, 
and a pair of handcuffs with an ornate key attached to them by a piece of green string. The medical examiner ruled her cause of death to be asphyxiation from a dog toy that had been shoved into her mouth and secured in place by a piece of string tightly wrapped around her head. On James Worley's keychain, an identical key matching the one attached to the pair of handcuffs on Sierra's body was found. Josh Kalinske would recall later that upon receiving the call that Sierra's body had been found, all he remembers is the sound of screaming. Sierra's mother would later say that the only time she felt relief in this whole nightmare was getting that call that she had been found. The news that her body had been found did put an end to their waiting, but it also put an end to her. With the finding of Sierra's body, James Worley is charged with abduction and murder. And when his trial began in 2018, prosecutors gave their theory on what they believed happened the night of Sierra's disappearance. The events that follow are speculation, based off the evidence and testimony by James Worley and what could have happened. After Josh and Sierra parted ways, James Worley was out riding his motorcycle on County Road 6 when he passed Sierra on her bicycle and at that point decided to abduct her. He would have gone up ahead, pulled his bike over, and paused as though he was kneeling by his bike to check for a malfunction, waiting for Sierra to approach. As she rode past where he knelt on the shoulder, he would have turned and struck her with his motorcycle helmet with enough force to cause serious injury and knock her to the ground, then dragged her into the corn and tied her up. He then would have left her tied in the field, concealed by the late summer corn stalks, then return later with the truck to transport her back to his property and assault her. The prosecution's theory was further solidified to the jury by the presence of Sierra's DNA located on the air mattress, a piece of duct tape containing both her and James' DNA, and her blood on the purple underwear found in the green chest. On March 27, 2018, the jury delivered their verdict. James Worley was guilty in the abduction and murder of Sierra Joggin and sentenced to death. Later that same year, Worley appealed his death sentence on the grounds that the jury was selected in his hometown of Fulton County and that his trial had been tainted by mentions of the previous abduction crime against, have you guessed it yet, Robin Gardner that he committed on July the 4th in 1990. He was granted a temporary stay of execution but on July 1st, 2021, the Supreme Court rejected the appeal and his death penalty sentence was unanimously upheld. Since Sierra's death, Sheila and her Aunt Tara have founded a rapidly growing organization that they named Justice for Sierra which works tirelessly to promote self-defense by offering classes to local grade schools and whose ultimate goal is to see legislation passed in every single state to ensure that just like a sex offender database, a violent offender database is readily accessible to members of the public. Because James Worley's 1990 crime somehow did not land him on Fulton County's sex offender list, he was able to fly under the radar upon his release from prison for decades. In 2018, the state of Ohio enacted its own law, named Sierra's Law, making their own violent offender database available to the public. Sierra Joggins' bedroom sits in her home, neat and untouched, from the same day she waved goodbye on her bicycle. And Sheila keeps it that way to remind herself of the beautiful life that she shared with her only daughter and the important work that she now advocates for in making the world a better, safer place. Even though James Worley met justice for his despicable crimes, there is no justice that can ever replace the bright spot that Sierra Joggin was in her family and community. We chose to tell you this story today because 
It's important to be vigilant of the monsters that lurk among us, to be prepared. And because Sierra was someone whom we all could have known and been best friends with, her life had immense value and it should enrage us that it was taken from her before it had barely begun. We'll leave you with some wisdom from the great Macklemore. You die twice, once when they bury you in the grave, and the second time is the last time that somebody mentions your name. Sierra Joggin, we will never stop mentioning your name. And if you'd like to hear more of Camping is Cancelled, tune in next week when we'll be bringing you part one of our two-part coverage of the mysterious murder, or was it an accident, Mm. of Kathleen Peterson in 2001, the wife of disgraced and nutty as fruitcake (laughs) author Michael Peterson that culminated in one of the longest and most befuddled trials in North Carolina's history. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at Camping is Cancelled, find us on Patreon as Camping is Cancelled, send us a Gmail if there's any cases you'd like to hear covered to campingiscancelled at gmail.com, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, campers, bye! Bye!